morning. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Good. Yeah. Is that fine? Yeah. Sure. Okay. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here to fellowship with you guys, to be able to open the way together and learn from God. The title of the sermon today is A Strong Doctrine of Scripture is an Antidote for False Teaching. A Strong Doctrine of Scripture is an Antidote for False Teaching. Today, we're going to learn how the Word of God helps us and protects us from false teaching. It helps us identify false teaching, and it also helps us by protecting us against it. It helps us wage war against false teaching. Our scripture for today is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. It reads, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing, continue, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Our outline for today, we're going to see how Paul in both these letters, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, seeks to expose the false teachers. We're going to learn that in Ephesus, where Timothy was, there was a rise in false teachers. And we're also going to learn about the authority of Scripture and how that protects us from false teaching. We're going to learn about the authority of Scripture as a divine statement, meaning it comes from God, and also as a rule of life, meaning to disobey Scripture is to disobey God. Third, we're going to learn the sufficiency of Scripture. We're going to learn it in ministry, in Christian living, and also as wisdom for salvation in Christ Jesus. Then we're going to apply all that we have learned and hear how Paul exhorts us. Now Paul is imprisoned in Rome. He is nearing the end of life. It's possible that as he wrote this epistle, as he wrote this letter to Timothy, he might have written it the same year that he died. He says in 2 Timothy 4, 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul has poured out himself in ministry. He has remained faithful to the end. His ministry nearing his conclusion, as he is about to be executed, he pours out himself one last time in this letter to Timothy. Timothy is a young preacher of the gospel. He's a co-worker, a close friend of Paul. His mother Eunice and grandmother Lois 
were faithful Jewish women who knew the scriptures and labored hard to teach them to Timothy. Timothy, as a child, he would have been taught how to memorize the Old Testament scriptures. And Paul writes this deeply personal letter to a close friend. He writes this letter with a particular aim and emphasis. That is for Timothy to be steadfast in preaching the word, even in the prevalence of false teachers. At this point in Ephesus, there was a rise in false teachers. There were men who, these were men who professed to be believers. They were amongst the church, but they were false teachers. These men attacked the word and they opposed the gospel message of Timothy and Paul. The church was under attack by these wicked men. And first we see Paul laboring to expose these false teachers. The first thing Paul addresses in the first letter of Timothy is the issue of false teachers. Paul says, chapter 1, verse 3, As I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul knew that there were men who were preaching different doctrines that there were men who were defiling the word of God, who were undermining its power and authority. Paul, having encountered these false teachers while he was with Timothy, is now urging him to continue to confront them. And Paul, in this letter, give us, an, give us an idea who these false teachers are like. He gives us this picture of who they are, so that we may be able to recognize them and guard against them. The first thing that we recognize, number one, these false teachers, they make confident assertions about things they do not understand. First Timothy 1 verse 7, their teaching is full of speculation, they are always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. They devote themselves to myths, Paul says and endless genealogies. They wander away into vain discussions. These men, instead of talking about the Bible, they talk about their life stories. All they care about is themselves. These guys, they fail to realize that the Bible is not about them. That is the first thing we realize about these false teachers. They make confident assertions about things they do not understand. Second, these false teachers are legalists. First Timothy 4.3 These men extend the law where it doesn't reach. They make their own laws. They become gods to their people. Their leadership is overreaching, overbearing. They are domineering to their congregation instead of being examples for them. First Peter 5.3 They forbid marriage. They require abstinence from food that God created. And you can have other examples also. You know of, of churches where women are not allowed to wear trousers. That is extending the law of God. Where women are supposed to wear head covering in church. That is extending the law of God. That is lording it over the people. Three, these false teachers are divisive. 
First Timothy 6.5. These false teachers, by their words, divide people. They deprave their minds and deprive them of the truth and leave them thinking that godliness is a means of grace. This is the heart of the prosperity gospel. They lie to people and make them think that their Christianity will reward them with gain, worldly gain. Works righteous religions. See this, this uh, religions that depend on works that tell you that you have to do good works in order to please God, in order to enter heaven. They leave people thinking that godliness is a means of grace. Four. These false teachers have fallen in love with the world. Second Timothy 4.10 Like demons, they have left the faith for convenience. They hate the persecution that comes with the gospel message. These men are cowards. They run from a challenge. They run from difficulty. And why wouldn't they? When all you preach is prosperity, health and success, any hint of difficulty exposes your message. Look at how these self-proclaiming prophets are exposed. We had a pandemic, COVID-19. It hit the entire globe. And not a, sing not a single one of them predicted it. They call themselves prophets, but they are false prophets. These men, they hate reality. That's why you never see them in hospitals. These men who, who claim that they can heal diseases, these men who make tricks and shows in their churches, they never go to the hospitals because they know that there are real problems which will expose their message. Five, these false teachers, they oppose the gospel message. Second Timothy 4.15, Paul warns Timothy of men like Alexander who strongly oppose the gospel message. They hate the gospel message. They undermine the gospel message. They hate it because it exposes their sin. They hate it because it brings no worldly gain. Instead, it brings persecution. Men like this hate the gospel because at the center of the gospel is that we are sinners. These men hate to know that they are sinners. They hate the gospel because with it, they cannot fulfill their personal ambitions. Six, these false teachers, they make shipwreck of their faith. First Timothy 1, 19 to 20, Paul charges Timothy to wage good warfare against men like Hymenaeus and Alexander, who by rejecting faith and good conscience have made shipwreck of their faith. These men have completely destroyed their faith. They have fallen away from the, from the faith they professed. If anything, they prove that, that they had no faith to begin with. And that, that's why Paul excommunicated them. He say, the, the Bible says, Paul handed over to Satan. He handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. He put them out of the church. And brothers, what a chilling reality this is for us. That men like Hymenaeus and Alexander can be found in the church, can be found amongst believers. 
Paul here is showing us these people, is exposing them so that we may be able to recognize them and call them to repentance. And if they refuse to repent, we need to put them out of the church because their words spread like gangrene. They infect other people. Paul says, these people are devil worshippers. First Timothy 4, 1 to 2. These people are used by the devil. They devote themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. And they do this because their consciences are said, they are seared, they can't perceive that what they're doing is wrong. The God of this world has blinded their eyes. Eight. Paul goes on attack. Paul attacks their character in the qualifications of an overseer. First Timothy 2 to 6, Paul here gives Timothy a guide, a framework to distinguish between false teachers and true gospel teachers. Paul says an overseer must be above reproach and a husband of one wife. But what do we see with these guys? Their lives are stained with scandals. They're always in the front of newspapers. They're accused of taking advantage of church members. These men, instead of being above reproach, they're under reproach. They appear to be husbands of one wife, at least legally. But in secret, these false teachers are involved with women. Women exploited. Sometimes even women in the church. We've seen such pastors exposed in the news by women who gain the courage to speak. You know of the Omotoso the, the trial, Omotoso trial, where a woman accused a pastor of sexually molesting her. Paul says a true gospel preacher is supposed to be respectable and hospitable. But these guys are only respectable because of the cars they drive, because of the clothes they wear, because of the places they go. They have gained a celebrity status in the community. They wear 90,000 sneakers, the Gucci belts, the Louis Vuitton shirts. This is not the kind of respectableness that should characterize a gospel preacher. They are not very hospitable. They don't fellowship with normal church members. You see in these documentaries, and you learn that some of these pastors, they actually make you pay to be able to see them. They're not hospitable. A true gospel preacher must be able to teach, but these guys, they can't teach. All they have is cunning phrases that hype up your emotions. A true gospel preacher must not be a drunkard, not violent, not quarrelsome. Many of these guys, though you may not know, they indulge themselves in alcohol. Only those who are close to them really know what is going on with these false teachers. They are violent. Second Timothy 4.14, Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. Paul says, a true gospel preacher is not a lover of money. 
And this might be the single most important factor to distinguish between a false teacher and a true gospel teacher. False teachers love money. They are intoxicated by money. They preach money. They wear money. They drive money. They love luxury. 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Paul concludes with this passage, 1 Timothy 3.1-9 But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so this man also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, Paul says, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Now, we look at the authority of Scripture, first as a divine statement. Second Timothy 3.16, Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. What does Paul mean when he says all Scripture? All Scripture here refers to the Old Testament. Of course, we know that at this point when Paul was writing this letter, the New Testament had not been written. So Paul here refers to the Old Testament. He says, every single word and detail of the Old Testament scripture comes from God. Second Peter 1.21 helps us understand what this means. Peter says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That means men spoke as they were directed by God. That means God is the only source of Scripture. God moved men through the power of the Holy Spirit to speak his own words. Literally, God put words in men's mouths. The only role that men played was to be used as vessels for God. Notice, this was not against their will. God, through the Holy Spirit, made men willing to say what he wanted them to say. All scripture is breathed out by God. What does this expression, breathed out by God, means? This expression, breathed out, is only used again in the creation account. When God is said to have breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature, Genesis 2-7. Man had no life until God breathed life into him. 
The same way men's words are like sand and they remain lifeless unless they are breathed out by God. That is why the word of God is living. That is why the word of God is powerful. That is why the word of God is able because it is inspired by God. And if all this is said about the, New, the Old Testament, what about the New Testament? Is the, Old Test- is the New Testament inspired by God the same way the Old Testament is? Let's look at three, three proofs that the New Testament is inspired by God. First, Jesus claimed to speak the words of God. And we don't need to go too far to know that Jesus spoke from God. The fact that Jesus is the Son of God, which means he's equal with God, and not only that, but he's only, he's the one who, he is one with God, means that whatever he uttered comes from God. Jesus spoke for the Godhead. Hebrews 1, 1 says, Long ago, that is in the Old Testament, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That is the Old Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom all he created. Through him also he created the world. So that we can conclude that the Gospels are Scripture. The Gospels hold the same authority as the Old Testament. Jesus' words here are equated with the words of the Old Testament prophets. But let's not only listen to the writer of Hebrews. Let's listen to Jesus himself. This is how he puts it. John 8:26. He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. John 8, 28. I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. John 15, 15. For all that I have, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Therefore, we see that the Gospels are God-breathed, and therefore they can be considered as Scripture. Second proof. The Apostles. The apostles claimed to speak words from God. The apostles were aware that their words were from God. We learn in 1 Thessalonians 2.3 that the apostles' words were not words of men, but true words of God. Their words were God-breathed. Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God. First Corinthians 14, 37, Paul says, The things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. And look at how Paul begins the first letter of Timothy in the second letter. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Paul spoke to Timothy by the command of God. Paul didn't come by himself. Paul didn't come of himself. He came from God. Paul was sent by God. 2 Timothy 1.1 Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul came by the will of God. 
Therefore, we see that Paul doesn't come by his own will and command. He comes as a servant of God. He comes as a herald with news that are not his own, but God's news. Not only is Paul called to be an apostle, but he's also called to speak according to God's will and command. Listen to how Peter validates the words of Paul. Peter says, and count, 2 Peter 3, 15, 16, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Paul didn't write according to his own wisdom. He wrote according to the wisdom that was given him by God, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. What Peter is saying is that Paul, people twist Paul's words the same way they twist the other scriptures. By saying this, Peter validates all of Paul's writings as scripture, as having the same authority as the Old Testament scriptures. The other proof, number three, the witness of the Spirit. How does the Spirit prove to us that these words that we read in the Bible are words of God and not just words of men? Ultimately, brothers, this is the greatest evidence that the New Testament writings have a divine origin. I can remember when I got saved, it was never a problem for me to question the scriptures. Automatically, I knew that the scriptures were inspired of God. And that was not because I was taught about the scriptures and the authority of the scriptures. That was because the Spirit convinced me that these words are not just words of men, but words of God. The words of Jesus alone are not enough to convince us that they come from God. That is why you find atheists devoting all their lives to study the word and then come to a different conclusion. They study all their life and then after that they deny that the Bible comes from God. It's because they don't have the witness of the Holy Spirit. We see that the Thessalonians believed that the words the apostles were preaching were words of God. We repeat the scripture and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you have heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God. Now how, how, is, how does this doctrine protect us from false teachers? How does knowing that the Bible comes from the mouth of God, how does this doctrine help us against false teachers? Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, if anyone says, anyone who says God told me and does not follow that with a verse from the Bible is a liar and a false teacher. The only way that must be trusted is the one from the Bible. Any teaching or saying that deviates from the Bible is to be rejected as false and heretical. It is to be charged as blasphemous and undermining the authority of Scripture. 
These men who call themselves prophets, who go on predicting people's future, these people are false teachers because they, they don't speak from the word of God. They've wandered away into vain discussions. They speak about things they do not understand. Now, the Roman Catholic Church believes that the church is above scripture and that scripture is secondary to the word of the Pope. And we know that it's blasphemy. It's blasphemy to say the church is above scripture. The Pope does not have the power to decide what to uphold and what to disregard in scripture. The Pope, like any other man, must respect all of scripture as coming from God. Scripture is sacred and must not be adulterated. Peter says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. The Roman Catholic Church again brings an objection they believe that men in the Bible were influenced by their circumstances to write the gospel and that there was no divine command that caused them to write. So what they're basically saying is that when Paul was in prison, he looked at the end of his life nearing and he looked at the rise of the false teachers and he wrote the letter to Timothy without God's command. So they are saying that the circumstances caused Paul to write this letter. But that's not what we believe. That's false teaching. We believe that both the circumstances and the command of God were in play. We believe that God is sovereign and therefore he not only uses the divine command, but he also orchestrates the circumstances that make God's word necessary for that occasion. God, by his provident caused the circumstances that moved men to write according to his divine command. Therefore, Paul, as he wrote to Timothy, warning him about false teachers, it was primarily God's command that moved him to write, but his circumstances, his impending death and the danger of the false teachers, all worked together, making it necessary for Paul to write such a letter. Second, the authority of Scripture as a rule of life. The Bible is the rule book of life. It is the manual for Christian living. It is essential for Christians to be familiar with the Bible because in it are principles for Christian living. But this is not how the world sees things. Often, Christians who value the authority of Scripture have to be unpopular, sometimes even risk losing friends and family just because they respect the authority of the Scriptures. We live in a world of relative truth, where people believe that there is no absolute truth. Absolute truth is absolute. It is out of date. People believe that everyone has their own truth. They say things like, your truth it's not my truth. It is because of tolerance that people claim that we can have contradictory opinions and both be right. Tolerance means that even though I know that what you're doing is wrong, I shouldn't point it out. 
because doing so will be forcing my truth on you. That's what the world preaches. The world preaches it requires us to embrace other people's sin just because just because they're different from us doesn't give us the right to judge them. They say things like, do not judge, lest you be judged. They say things like, keep your religion to yourself. Now, how does a Christian respond? How does a Christian who believes the authority of the Bible as a rule of life respond? This is our response. The Bible is an exclusive book. It is a radical document. Not only does the Bible claim to be the truth, but it also claims that it is the foundation of truth. That whatever is true finds its truth in the Bible, and that anything that contradicts the Bible is to be held as false. There is no truth without the Bible. That means if the Bible says homosexuality is a sin, then it is a sin, regardless of how men feel about it or how the culture has normalized it. The Bible dictates the culture, not the other way around. We don't interpret the Bible in light of our circumstances. We interpret our circumstances in light of what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't recognize relative truth. The Bible is the only truth, and it requires complete obedience from us. If you believe that the Bible is breathed out by God, then you must believe that to disobey it is to disobey God himself. God does not change, and his words do not change. If sex before marriage is a sin, 1 Corinthians 7, 2, then you better believe that it is sin, no matter how much it is normalized or accepted by the culture. Therefore, brothers, we are called to radical obedience in our private life and in our public life. This, brothers, is how we recognize false teachers and false churches when they start embracing what the Bible condemns. When a church starts embracing homosexuality, it has left the faith. When a church starts embracing women preachers, even when the Bible is clearly against it, that church has left the faith. This proves that there is no respect to the authority of Scripture. The false teachers have wandered away into vain discussion. And Paul warns Timothy of this very thing, 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, For the time is coming when people will not enjoy sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Thus, brothers, every dispute amongst you is to be settled by the word of God. Every controversy is to be settled by the word of God. Number three, let's look at the sufficiency of Scripture. Second Timothy three sixteen to 17. The Bible says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In ministry and in Christian living, the man of God here 
specifically refers to Timothy. But generally, it refers to every Christian. God's word is profitable, which means that the word of God is useful. The word of God is valuable. The word of God is active. The word of God is powerful. If all scripture is profitable, then no part of scripture is to be valued more than another. All scripture is equally useful, even if it doesn't address your immediate need. Even if the scripture doesn't talk to your current situation, that scripture is still valuable. It is still profitable. Every part of the body is useful in its place, and no part of the body can be disregarded without loss. The same way every part of scripture is useful in its own place. The scripture is profitable for teaching. That is, the scripture is profitable for communicating instruction. If our church is to be effective in evangelism, then we must be a church that values scripture. Because with scripture, we are able to teach. Scripture is profitable for reproof. The word reproof here means to convince of wrong to convince a man of his sins. This also is important because part of the gospel message is to convince people that they are sinners. Paul says the word of God is useful in convincing men of his sin, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Scripture is profitable for correction. The word correction carries with it the word reformation, to reform, to turn, to bring men to a reformation. Scripture is a powerful means of bringing men into their proper state, to bring men back to his senses. Albert Barnes says, the word is still the most powerful and most effectual means of recovering those who have fallen into vice. Do you have a friend who has backslidden and you're wondering how to bring them back? Use scripture. It is your best chance. We learn that scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. God doesn't only save us and leave us to figure, figure out how to live the Christian life. God has given us instructions on how to lead a holy and upright life. You want to know what it is to be holy? Read your Bible. Here we see the sanctifying nature of Scripture, that the more you read it, the more you are conformed to the image of God. Therefore, let us devote ourselves to the reading of Scripture, knowing that it is effective in training us in righteousness. We learn that Scripture is profitable, that the man of God may be complete. This means that everything needful for the work of the minister will be found in Scripture. The minister can never go further than Scripture. The more you dive into the Bible, the more it deepens. The more you find, the more is revealed. So that the man of God will never surpass the Bible. Every work that the minister is involved in, there is enough in the Bible to instruct him.
we learn that the word of God is sufficient as wisdom for saving faith in Christ Jesus. First Timothy 3 verse 15 and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Here, brothers and sisters, we learn the limitation of the Bible, and that is, in itself, it cannot save. Without faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible becomes a manual for good works, not for salvation. The Bible is the pathway to Christ, who ultimately saves. Albert Barnes says, the study of the scriptures, valuable as they are, would not save the soul unless there was faith in the Redeemer. The power, the power, the proper effect of a careful study of the Old Testament would be to lead one to put his trust in the Messiah. Here is what this text is saying. This text proclaims that Christ is the source of the Bible, that he is the word that became flesh. Christ is the foundation of the Bible's ability and power to save. That Christ is the center of the Bible. The Bible culminates in Christ. Jesus is the climax of the, of the biblical story. Christ is the subject of the Bible. The Bible is all about him. Scripture finds its usefulness in Christ. Scripture finds its life in Christ. Without Christ, the Bible remains a tale called dead book. Without Christ, the Bible cannot save. Ultimately, without Christ, there is no forgiveness of sins, and we remain in our sin. It is only through faith in Christ, who is explained in the scriptures, that we come to salvation. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. Therefore, we must realize that Christ has revealed God and to know God is to know Christ and to know Christ is to know the scriptures. The Bible begins and ends with Christ. And this is what we learn, that Christless preaching is lifeless preaching. Christless preaching is useless preaching. Christless preaching is false preaching. Beware of Christless preachers who use the name of Christ in their sermons while they dishonor and trample him underfoot. Paul says, avoid such people. Now to our application and exhortation. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not enjoy sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Brothers, here we are exhorted 
to preach the word. Paul saying, do you want to wage war against false teachers? Preach the word. You want to see the gospel reach people? Preach the word. You want to see people living for Christ? Preach the word. You want to see children honoring the Lord? Preach the word. And while you preach it, remember your audience. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Chapter 4, uh, 4, verse 1, says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. That is your audience. It is only the people who are listening, it, it is not only the people who are listening to you, but you are in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. Every time you open scripture, every time you share the gospel, you are in the presence of God and Jesus Christ. And that must be the greatest motivation to preach faithfully because you know that the Godhead is listening. It must also be the greatest comfort that as you preach the scriptures, God is there with you. Christ is there with you, emboldening you, strengthening you to preach. You are not alone. And while you are at it, don't forget that seasons will change. There will be seasons of fruit and dry seasons. It doesn't matter. Your job, it is to preach. Preach in season and out of season. Let God worry about the fruits. Our focus shouldn't be how many people are saved. Instead, our focus should be to remain consistent and faithful preachers of the word. I'll end with this hymn. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth planted deep in us. Shape and fashion us in your likeness that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority, words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us, truth unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. And by grace will stand on your promises, and by faith will walk as you walk with us. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We pray, Father, for our hearts to be pierced. Pray for your living word to be active in our lives. We pray, Father, that it might affect us and change us. Lord, help us to have the correct attitude and to respond appropriately to this message. Help us to love you and to honor you in all that we do in Jesus' name. Amen.